Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content if available at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow fight analysts Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) We want a live crowd event, people. Yeah, it's true. I I mean, honestly. I knew it was live before I even checked the location because the card is kind of good. Yeah, you look at it and you're like, hey, they've got two, three, three ranked fights on the top of this card. That is really, really rare for a fight. Like, they must be somewhere where they have tickets to sell. And what do you know they are? And I don't know if this is an indication of, like, um, objective quality or not, but uh, the fights where people aren't ranked, they are people that I'm personally like, oh, yeah, this guy's good. Uh, no, yeah, they definitely like Gavin saved, Tucker, you know, they definitely saved Quarantillo Jackson and yeah, Phillips Barcelos and Wells Harris for this kind of card, right? Like, the, the oh, these are fun action fighters that put on fun fights, yeah, we'll put them on this card and not the uh RDA Luque card, which has a heavyweight fight between Josh Parisian and Martin Boudet on the main. Card. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, we're back at the apex. Here's <laughs> Josh Fremd versus Jamie Pickett. Oh my god. That's a real fight? Yeah. <laughs> On the main card. Next Yeah. Week. You yeah. know, I don't like to argue for people to lose their jobs. But <laughs> just got all these people. They should do apex events for a year and be like, everyone that we came to the decision. Oh, we'll put this sucker on an apex card. Just yeah. cut them loose. Cut them adrift. Yeah. No kidding. No, I mean, I, I, I too will not argue for anybody to lose their jobs. But if you are going to solidly C tier your product that way, then yeah, could yeah. really literally just yeah, yeah. You can <laughs> notice it all the more when you get a card like this, where, like I said, I, I half these fights I'm sure don't have a single ranked fighter in them, and yet I look at them and I'm like, oh, this is going to be some cool MMA. Yeah. Anyway, I'm into it. Yeah, so let's talk about this main event because it's pretty awesome, honestly. Yeah. Um, It does make me feel still a little bad for Rob Font, but I don't know what you do. Yeah. um, With a guy like Font because it makes me feel bad because he took a bunch of hard losses, right? Yeah. And he came back. It was great to see him get a win over Adrian Yanez. Reverse momentum stopped a prospect in his tracks, but I still remember those hard losses mm-hmm. and how worried I was about Rob Font. And then the idea that, like, this is what you do. He's a top fighter, so you throw him back in there against top fighters. Yeah, and I mean, you know, too, you know, this is a fight, Rob Font. Other than the the short notice aspect of it, although we, he still got uh, 
How long did he get? He got uh he's gotten a couple of weeks to prep for it. So it's not too too short notice, but you know mm-hmm. this is the kind of fight that Rob Font wants, you know. Well, this that's right. This was supposed to be um Umar Nurmagomedov. Yeah, which I also would have been interested to see. Yeah, that would have been an interesting one for Corey Sandhagen, a huge step up for uh, Nurmagomedov for Font. It's you know, this is this is an opportunity to put himself right back in that converse, conversation of like top five contenders at Bantamweight mm-hmm. if he can win this fight. So, yeah, you know it's uh, you know it's a chance that he was happy to jump at. Yeah, but uh, you know, <clears throat> as much as Corey Sandhagen isn't like a uh, necessarily a carbon copy of the guy who has been beating Rob Font, there are some concerning similarities. Mm-hmm. Corey Sandhagen is extremely durable. He is extremely consistent in terms of his pace, meaning he's going to be there for five rounds, putting in good work. Um, and, uh, you know, like Cheeto Vera, at least he's got the reach. He's got the fully yeah. fledged, well-rounded game. Um, and, uh, Corey Sandhagen doesn't scream power puncher. But uh, he does knock a lot of people out and hurt a lot of people. Yeah, he's so he's so good and dynamic at surprising people. He does yes. actually have a reach disadvantage to Font. Sure, uh, two inches. But there's but more parity than parody. Font. Yeah, yeah, more more parity there than Font has against, say, your Sergio Pettis. <laughs> I know that fight was years ago now, but yeah. Um, and yeah, as you said, Corey Sandhagen is exceptionally good at setting up a shot his opponent doesn't see coming. Um, he is a really great builder mm-hmm. um, and it's stacking layers on top of each other. And um, yeah, I just can't help but think that like for all the good work Rob Font does in his fights, um, unless it's like Adrian Yanez and he, you know, knocks him out with one shot, which seems very unlikely to happen to Corey Sanhagen. He still just has a style where he like is throwing himself into the fire over and over, all the mm-hmm. more so against somebody who has a similar reach and is um, this time, unlike Chido Vera, Jose Aldo, just as high output as him. Yeah, I will say uh, that, Fa- that San Higgins reach is actually only a half inch longer than Sergio Pettis's. That's really so, funny. But the height yeah. makes a huge difference. It does. Yeah, if you if you you could have Sergio Pettis's exact arms, but if you're as tall as Rob Font, you're gonna have a much easier time touching his chin. Yeah, and no, that was the thing that too that really came across in Font's fight with Yanez is that whenever they were starting out at distance, Font was losing that fight. Yeah, every minute that Font had to be on the outside trying to walk uh Yanez down he was getting hit really clean with hard jabs and getting yeah. busted up and really the only the point that, that that fight actually really turned on was the point where Font started moving his head along with his jab to mm-hmm. slip into the pocket and get in under uh Get in under and around Yanez's jab. Yeah. And he was so, still getting hit with combinations while doing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a moment very shortly before the finish where he's rolling and he like rolls under a jab 
and eats an uppercut just flush like straight to the mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I, I, I can't help but look at that fight and and feel pretty much exactly as I did when watching it live, which is that it was more an error in judgment from Yanez. Mm-hmm. Um, more a mistake on Yanez's part, perhaps even a stylistic limitation, than it was um, a really good performance from Rob Font. Because I think the misconception Yanez had, and I don't blame him for having this misconception, was that Rob Font kept getting finished by people and that he's a really great puncher and a really great finisher, and he's just going to go in there and knock him out. Yeah, which and is funny, too, because Font's never actually been knocked out. That's true. Actually, he, he, he's, he's getting hurt getting, by people a lot. That's actually true. He just keeps getting repeatedly nearly finished by them. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I, I think he thought Font was chinny and mm-hmm. couldn't take it, and he was going to go in there and swing it out with him. And, um, you know, ignoring the fact that uh, or failing to appreciate the fact that, as you said, Font isn't actually getting knocked out. And none of these people who are hurting him are having that kind of fight with him. And that, in fact, going in and trading 50-50 with Rob Font is precisely what they did not do and is, in fact, a very dangerous thing to do even now. Yeah. Font's a puncher. Yeah, he's got that surprising, he's got the long arms, big hands thing where yeah, he's not doing anything special. He's not doing anything people can't see coming. He just hits really surprisingly hard for a guy his size. Yeah, don't don't make the mistake of thinking he's not a puncher because um, he, he touched Jose Aldo with a billion jabs, but that was mostly all he could land. Yeah, or because that's what he can't you, knock out Marlon Or Barrow. because he couldn't knock out Cheeto, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Rob Font hits hard as hell and trading with him is dangerous. Corey Sandhagen is not going to have that kind of fight. Why would he? Yeah. Um, it's going to be violent. He is going to be up for some trades, no doubt. Corey Sandhagen is not a risk averse fighter, but it will be calculated and he is going to go in there and try to stick Font with his own jab. He is going to use his footwork. Um, I mean, I am curious to see as always how Font's jab affects Sandhagen's game. Mm hmm. But guaranteed, Sanhagen will come in with at least a few very specific counters to that. I suspect he is going to try to chop Rob Font's leg out. It would, yeah, it seems like a very... He's going to try to move around uh, side to side and draw out the jab and, and try to punish him for yeah. that. He's going to slip inside of it and go to the body. He's a great body puncher. Um, he's going to be looking to shoot underneath it. Not a great shot takedown artist, but a surprisingly resourceful and successful takedown artist all the same, Corey Santagan. Yeah, I do wonder if that will actually be a functional part of his game here or something that he ends up having to abandon. Fox. The thing is, with Sandhagen, unlike Jan Blokovich, he's happy for it to just be one of many things that he's yeah. sprinkling in. Yep. Maybe it'll work later, but... It's like a jab. If the jab doesn't land, that doesn't mean the jab didn't work. That means you've learned, okay, when, when things feel like this, I'm out of range. Now I know how to adjust my next jab. If the takedown doesn't work, that doesn't mean it didn't work, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It can set other things up. It can put something in the opponent's head. That is very much how Corey Sandhagen thinks about, I think, everything he does. How, what, what can I build off of that? So, yeah. He I'm, I'm going to pick Sandhagen. Craft. Yeah, yeah. I, I ultimately have to. You have two guys that are very, very durable. Yeah. And pr- push a good pace 
and one of them is just a lot more creative and doesn't have the problem of having a point in the fight where he just has to eat shots to succeed. Yeah. yeah. You know, because that's really what it is. Like Sandhagen can be outside a distance stepping into the pocket. Yeah. And he's creative and dynamic enough in the offense he creates that opponents have to respect him when he's stepping inside because they don't know what they're going to get back from him. Mm-hmm. And he moves well enough along with that. And is he's learned to be defensive enough off the back foot over time Yep, that he's a very hard fighter to just uh, track down and beat out. You really have to constantly, constantly pursue and chase him with big power shots mm-hmm. to, you know, win out like Peter Yan did or even TJ Dillashaw or was just like constantly going after him and trying. And even after the Dillashaw fight, I would say he improved a lot in his defensive movement on the back foot and the ability to be pressured. And you know, there are just not a lot of Rob font fights that have a, a real momentum shift in his favor. Are there? Yeah. He sort of either is, he's the guy he is. He has his yep. style. He has his, his, you know, nice varied jab and the big power punches. He wants to set up off of that and a couple other tricks and he just sort of has a Rob Font fight with everyone. Yeah, it's a very one speed, yeah. one delivery kind of fight. And either you realize pretty quickly they can't deal with it, or you realize pretty quickly that Rob Font's going to lose. Yeah. That tends to, that seems to be the pattern. The, the Yanez fight was like a kind of a rare exception where it was a fight not going all that well for him. Sure. And then he found a couple of moments inside. Yeah. And really realized just more than anything that as a a longer te- tenured veteran of bigger fights that he had more, uh, you know, he had more dexterity in the pocket than Giannis. He had more of an idea of what kind of fight he wanted to have in the pocket than Giannis. Giannis got, got Font in the pocket and was like, oh, great, I can just bomb on this guy and get him right. out of here. And Font got Giannis in the pocket and was like, well, if I slip in and put it, you know, and grab him here, his head will be here and I can set up this strike. Yeah. And I mean, it was a three minute fight. Yeah, it's it's true. You know. Um, but yeah, that, he's, Font's not going to have that with Sandhagen either. Sandhagen is, he's a very experienced, uh, very good fighter at all ranges. There's not going to be a point where Font can just catch him out because Sandhagen doesn't know what to do in this situation, you know? Yeah. And yeah, otherwise I just I gotta lean on the creativity. He's not gonna be able to set a pace that Sandhagen can't meet meet, and he's like he's not probably not gonna be able to finish him. So you gotta lean on the idea that Sandhagen is going to find Rob Font stepping into the pocket on straight lines with him a lot. And meeting strikes that he can't quite predict. So, 
Yeah, but the jab battle is going to be interesting. I mean, that yeah. is the that is the heart and soul of, and, of Rob Font's game. And, and uh, Font can do what he did with Giannis and actually just start slipping behind his jab and keep pressure really high. There's something there, you know? Sure. But I think we got to go with Sandhagen. Yeah. Odds on the fight... Sandhagen is the favorite of a minus 258, currently down at minus 338. Rob Font opened up at plus 223, currently up at plus 282. All right, that brings us to a woman's strawweight bout. Jessica Andrade versus Tatiana Suarez. And She's back again. Yeah, double back. That's right. Um, it's a good sign. It's only been six months since her last fight. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, neither one of these women looked great in their last fight. Yeah, it's true. Andrade has not looked great in numerous recent fights. Yeah. Andrade really seems like she is... Uh, having some severe identity struggles. Yeah. She, I think she has tried a lot to become a more technical striker and a more thoughtful, defensively minded striker over time. And it just doesn't, it's never feel, it never feels like a comfortable balance for the fighter that Andrade wants to be. No. So, you know, even when she has fights like she did with Lauren Murphy or uh, Cynthia Calvillo, she can still get back to fights with Aaron Blanchfield and Yan Nan, where somebody can offer her something where she needs to be technical suddenly, not just wants to be, but needs to be. Yeah, exactly. She can have a jab coming at her. She can have somebody, you know, really obviously keyed in on countering her. Things like that where suddenly it's, oh, I have to be technical. And then the technique isn't there because she's not confident and comfortable with it. Like that fight with Jean-Anne was, Mm -hmm. it was a disaster. You know? Yep. That that looked like Joanna Janjacek, Jessica Andrade. Yeah, except she got finished instantly. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's which is itself a bad sign. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure she is having broader identity struggles in her life. I mean, it wasn't that long ago she uh, she talked about like, uh, oh yeah. yeah, being like pressured into whether it was just financial pressure or it was like a it was like an exploitative manager or something. I think it was a, her girlfriend at the time was like leaning like on her to, to do like OnlyFans and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, and she like hated doing it and like, yeah, I just don't think Jessica Andrade just doesn't look um, as confident and you, you kind of get it. I mean, the results yeah. in the cage don't yield confidence. It doesn't sound like things have been going great for her personally. Yeah. Um, I don't know. 
And then on the other side, you have Tatiana Suarez coming out and fighting uh, Montana De La Rosa, who is actually a better fighter than she gets credit for. Yeah. Pretty well-rounded, really down to scrap with somebody everywhere. But not a really great athlete, not a really dangerous fighter. And there was no physical dominance yeah. in Suarez's game. And I realize she's up a division at flyweight, but this is somebody who used to come out and just be like a clear, big, athletic step above her opposition. And here she is down up at, you know, fighting Montana De La Rosa, having to depend on headlock throws. Yeah. You know? And... Jessica Andrade is a good athlete. She is strong. She's and she's also real squat. True. So it may be that that you know, even even down at 115 pounds, it may be that Suarez doesn't feel like a notably more powerful fighter. If it basically if, if her shot wrestling is gone from her her neck injuries and knee injuries, then yeah. There's a reasonable question about how easily she's going to be able to control Andrage. Yeah, that that right there makes the the size parity much more of an issue. Yeah, because at least she could surprise people and catch them off balance. Um, and she's also got those weirdly long arms, so her her uh, level change takedowns would connect uh, even when people thought they had successfully gotten their legs back. Yeah. And now, I, I mean, yeah, she she hit like a couple singles on Montana De La Rosa and stuff like that as well. There was still some what I would think of more as like freestyle wrestling technique, mm-hmm. but it was a, a really obvious struggle that it yeah. seemed like it, it needed to be way more of a physical struggle than you would have expected. She was actually only two of six on takedowns in that fight. Yeah. Granted, uh, super long layoff in addition to the injuries could very yeah. well have just been and I. I don't look at that fight and see any reason to think that there wasn't some ring rust happening there as well. Yeah. I mean, the end of the day here, I'm going to pick Tatiana Suarez because everything Andrade does for better and worse is going to lead her into tie-ups with Suarez. Yeah. She is going, she's just not, you know, she's really not built to avoid somebody that wants to wrestle with her. Yeah. Even her best, most technical performances they they involve they involve people like uh, Murphy and Nami Yunus, who want eventually to to mostly kickbox with her and try to outpoint her. You yeah, know? The, the 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 thing that worries me is that really it's mostly just the striking where people actually beat Amanda or, or Jessica Andrade. It's true. It's true. She doesn't actually get beaten on the ground. Partly this is because of who she's fighting. That all of her um, more grappling-specific opponents tend to be like horribly physically outmatched. Yeah, or and, or be trapping themselves out of grappling. Like Cynthia Calvillo just yeah, of course. to a point in her career where she can either be a boxer or a wrestler, but can't do both. Yeah, but it's just tough to it's just tough to see somebody like. 
exploiting and and Draj's tendency to run herself into the clinch and and using that to you know dominate her on the ground and take her down repeatedly at will when like that doesn't really happen i've just never seen it happen i haven't seen it enough to to, to feel very confident in predicting not since like raquel pennington in 2015 no and then Dodge um, has gotten better since then. There's no question about it. Oh, yeah. No, no, Even no, no, no. Just in terms of experience, right? Not If not technique. Um, and she's just bigger relative to her opponents. Yeah. But I just don't like what, like what I thought of her in her last fight. Yeah. I just don't like where it seems like her head is. So I'm more, yeah. my, more keyed into feeling like she is going to be anxious in the cage and put herself and have herself in positions where if the fight starts going against her, her decision-making is going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, I have to agree it, it, but it is largely a, um, a pick made from like the career perspective. Yeah. Like, I feel like Andrade is on the way down, unfortunately. And if either of these fighters is bouncing back or having any upward trajectory, it's Suarez, you know, maybe not the greatest performance, but Montana De La Rosa is not um, the gimme that you might, that you might've expected her to be. She's Mm -hmm. a, she's a solid fighter. Um, First fight in a new division after a long layoff, after a series of injuries, there's a lot of reasons to think that, I mean, unfortunately all these could be things that mean she's not going to look better than that going forward. Yeah. But that is not a certainty yet. Um, yeah. I'm and, more and willing I, to bet on Suarez getting her, getting to her wrestling chain wrestling and still being able to do it. Yeah. Then I am that Andrade is just going to knock her out. And I do think that, um, while part of Andrade's success is her physical strength and her frame, her success mm-hmm. against grapplers, it is hard to ignore uh, the sort of names you see when you're like hunting for grappling stylists on this resume. Yeah. It's like, first of and, all, there aren't as many of them as you'd expect because I think they tend to put Andrade into think, fights they think are going to be bangers. Yep. And otherwise, it's like, as you said, Calvillo, who like, has absolutely no idea that she's a grappling stylist. Yeah, or Gadelia, who was like thoroughly at that point getting deep in her own head about she like, was where Androge is right now, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's Shevchenko who didn't took, need to grapple, but she took her just, down seven times. That's true. And uh, yeah, so. And Blanchfield took her down too. And Blanchfield. I mean, to be, yeah, Blanchfield outstruck her first. That is yeah. something I don't think Suarez can do. No. I think her striking still looks extremely clunky. Yeah, extreme. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm still going to pick her. Yep. Yeah. If, if, if Suarez can't get takedowns, I think I feel confident she's just going to lose. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's, she's just too awkward on the feet. Yeah. I've seen a number of fights of hers where she can't get takedowns as easily as she would like, and she can hang, but her striking, she doesn't exactly figure what's figure out what's going wrong down the yeah. stretch. She she has she has some serious if Jillian Robertson were more insulated by athleticism and reach. Yeah, yeah. 
she would be Tatiana Suarez. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, okay, I can see that you've worked on some things and you know what she's you got want more to confidence do. in it. She's harder yeah. to put off than Jillian. I think she's she's just more a little bit more of a gamer in uncomfortable yeah. spots than Jillian, but she doesn't look much better technically yeah. than Jillian. All right. Andraj opened it plus three thirty-three is currently a plus two eighty-seven. And Suarez opened at minus 476. It's currently minus 344. Those odds are getting tighter. They should, honestly. Like I said, Suarez's last fight does not inspire a ton of confidence. No. It was very much like, oh, okay, you know, you had to, you kind of had to jump guillotine on a very mid-level opponent to get that fight truly sewn up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's just not a, uh, I don't know. It doesn't feel like exact. you know, it wasn't an instant like, oh my God, she's a contender again right away kind of fight. No, but neither was it a, oh my God, she's done. Like I still no, need to no. see. I still need to see. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a light heavyweight fight. Dustin Jacoby, Kennedy uh, Nzechuku, and... Yeah, why, not, are they, why are they doing our boy Jacoby like this? I know, I know. Two, he's coming off two losses. Yeah, both both good performances. He's getting another ranked opponent. There's still that. Yeah, but give my man a moment to bounce back, for God's sake. I mean, his last opponent was not ranked, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, which because Osmat Mirzakhanov really impressed in that fight. Yeah. Um. He like really, really delivered a super consistent and very clever performance. Um, he looks like he basically should be ranked, is what I'm saying, or mm -hmm. will be soon. And yet, Jacoby lost to an unranked guy all the same. And um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's probably not too much cause to worry. It would just be a shame to see Jacoby drop three in a row, which might happen here. Mm hmm. Um, that being said, it's not like he's looked so far like his confidence gets takes like a huge dent from these losses. He tends to come in looking good, yeah. looking sharp. I mean, I thought honestly in that fight with Mirzakhanov, clearly um, Mirzakhanov had you know had something to really put a scare into Jacoby and yeah. make that fight hard on him. But it was also like. It was a really good showing to me of Jacoby re really once and for all getting away from being the guy against like Iwan Kudalaba and yeah. uh, John Alon and Maxime Grishin and those fights where you were like, oh, Jacoby is always kind of holding back out of fear of what might, you know, he might get yeah. take, taken down or he doesn't really know what to do out there and he's just trying to lean on his kickboxing that Merzikana fight was the one where he was just like I'm getting clubbed I should yep. find a way to solve that but I'm also just going to keep pressing and staying on this guy and I'm not going to let him knock me off my game yeah that was one of those fights where the calculated decision he had to make was to have a fight yep and he did it yeah, he yeah. absolutely and and even in the other performances Jacoby is a guy who tends to come on strong later in the fight Mm -hmm. tends to spend some time figuring things out. Sometimes that feels like him like shaking off the jitters yep, um, and having to get hit and then being like, okay, this isn't so bad. 
sometimes, as I think it was against Merzakhanov, it is just him putting things together and literally just actively figuring out what works. Yeah. Um, but we both really like Jacoby for a reason. I mean, he's a very solid technical kickboxer, certainly by light heavyweight standards. Mm-hmm. He relies heavily on his jab. Um, he's pretty good defensively. He's a pretty solid combination puncher later in the fight. Uh, he deals with kicks well, um, as well as being a reasonable kicker in his own right. He's uh, and increasingly hard to to take down. And yeah. um, possibly at some point in the future, we'll see Jacoby start wrestling people of his own accord. Might uh, happen. His wrestling overall seems to have improved. And now he's going to be in there against a guy who is really worse in every respect, technically, as a striker, but who is huge. True. I don't know how much bigger Nzechukwu is than Jacoby. Let's find out. 6'5", 83-inch reach. Um, And he is not a particularly skinny guy for that frame. Yeah, and like two two inches taller, and his reach advantage is nine inches. No, 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 five inches. Se- oh, so you're right, seventy six. Sorry, I somehow went into a duodecimal system, base twelve in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but five inches still. A big reach advantage. He's just a big, big light heavyweight. Yep, and he has shown on numerous occasions. He is happy to use that to just sort of inexorably press forward on guys and put out a ton of volume. He's super durable, too. Mm-hmm. But he is also more than happy to use that in the wrestling. Yep. Just be the most annoying six-foot, six-and-a-half-foot-tall blanket <laughs> imaginable and just, like, cling to people and drag them down. And Intetriquu is also, like, to go along with this super annoying wrestling style is a, a good grappler by light heavyweight standards. Yeah. I mean, a good positional grappler, pretty solid submission artist. Um, getting in Zetchukwu on your back is a very difficult situation to get out of for most light heavyweights. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see Jacoby having all the success in the world and just, like, lighting in Zetchukwu up with jabs. And then the thing is, is that Ntechukwu just tends to, when when things go horribly for him, he has a unnerving habit of suddenly turning the fight around. Yeah. <sighs> Part of that is that he, the light heavyweight is the, uh, it, it is the glass cannon division. Yeah. So it is a, it is a division filled with guys who, look like they are absolutely beating your ass and are only one bad 10 second True. 10 second burst away from having a huge meltdown that is very true and like yeah. we saw against Negamarianu who is in no way a better fight, fighter than Dustin Jacoby no uh just having a guy who is there the whole time and not getting absolutely having his soul crushed to quitting. Negamariani won. And you could yeah, argue that he shouldn't he have won just, that fight. It was but, perfectly close. And he just hit in with the stupidest punches you've ever seen. And it was just, but he was not cowed, you know? Yeah. 
Dustin Jacoby seems increasingly difficult to cow, and he has never been a fragile fighter. Yeah, no, he's he's got a chin on him. Yeah, he's been he's got a TKO by injury once. He has been like attritively finished with ground and pound. Um, he got knocked out by Alex Padetta in kickboxing. Big whoop. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't. I mean, he's got a couple kickboxing losses by getting knocked down a bunch without getting knocked out. I mean. Mm-hmm. He he has certainly looked anything but fragile in these light heavyweight fights. He's not yeah. particularly easy to hit either. Yeah, I mean Mirza Khanov nailed him with he hurt him too and he, on the planet. Yeah, and he hurt him, but he recovered yeah. and finished the fight super strong. Yeah. Yeah. Nsechuku has beaten a bunch of extremely suspect fighters. A bunch of guys like I you know, nothing against Devin Clark and Iwan Kudalaba and Carl Roberson. But they are all fighters made to, Yeah, oh, I'm doing pretty good. Oh, wait, something started going against me. I am totally losing, you know. And, and the Carlos uh, Olberg fight. Yeah. Was, the prime example of that exact dynamic. Yeah. Guy who's like having all the fun in the world, blowing every ounce of his energy in four minutes and then just suffering for it for as long as the fight lasted after. Yeah, yeah. I'll take I'll, I'll take Jacoby. I just think he's a much more solid fighter. But uh, I don't know. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the big guy just annoyingly wrestling him. Zachiku is he is a real dark horse talent in this division because yeah. he is a giant, and he is a pretty damn durable giant. He's super durable. Yeah, and so it doesn't take that much technical improvement for him to be able to just always have a chance to hurt people, you know, super Uh, durable, fast paced. I mean, yeah, that combined with the size, he's just a, he's an unusual light heavyweight. Yeah. So it is, it is a tough fight to call. I'm going to pick Jacoby though, as well. I just, you know, for every every Nzechaku fight, no matter how well he's doing, also seems to have a period of the fight where he's just totally getting wailed on. Mm-hmm. You know, not even like, oh, I'm kind of, I had a bad, like, like Jacoby has fights where he'll be doing well and like he might get hit with a shot or something like that. Or every now and then his opponent really catches him with something or something like that. But Nzechuku usually has like a two or three minute stretch where it's just like, is he about to die? Mm-hmm. And then he just rallies back. And you're like, oh, well, guess not. But I feel like Jacoby is patient and well put together enough that if he gets, if he can get moments where Nzechuku is going to get hurt, he can ride that wave better than like Devin Clark who hurt in such a coup really badly. And then just like mean mugged him till his gas tank run it ran out, you know? Yeah. It looked like, like, have you ever seen one of those videos of the person's like teaching an AI to like solve a puzzle (laughs) and it'll be like a little block that has to like go through. It has to like jump up onto a thing to get to the exit door out of the room. It's trapped in. Yeah, and it takes it like eighty-five million tries of just dying in every conceivable way. Yeah, 
That was the process Devin Clark was going through to discover body punching. Yep. When attempting to finish in such a way. It's like just another 35 billion more attempts, and I might decide to throw this punch at a different target. Yeah. And then I'll know it forever. I yeah. I learned yeah. it, but we didn't have enough time. No. Worst finishing attempt I've ever seen. Yeah. Frankly, worse than Roy Nelson trying to take out Alistair over him. Yep. So, yeah, I think I, I just think it's that kind of, you know, those kinds of fighters are primed to lose to Nzachuku. Absolutely. Because he is so big and so durable. So if you are just throwing yourself against him, expending your energy, you're, you're, you're leading yourself to your own doom. But I really don't feel like... I don't feel like Jacoby's that guy. He definitely isn't. Jacoby is himself an unusual light heavyweight. Yeah. He is not your 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 standard member of the glass cannon division. No, he doesn't have the power. He doesn't have the dynamic ability, but he has a very steady process mm-hmm. to it. So yep. We'll see. I won't be. I won't be at all surprised if Nzechukwu beats him and just does, you know, like gets hurt and starts slow himself, and then suddenly just like roars back, takes him down, and elbows him through the. Yeah, camp. it's like but, awkwardly grabbing a kick, or yeah, you know, just like driving him into the fence and like dragging him to the floor. These are the things that concern me for Jacoby. Yeah, it as long happen. as it's on the feet, despite the ridiculous size difference. Jacoby is going to find ways of landing clean and yeah. it's not, not going to have too much trouble not getting hit in return. I mean, and most, I, I, most yeah. of his best takedown work and wrestling work comes from him winning a clinch battle first. Yeah. He's not a shot wrestler. He's True. somebody who gets somebody into the cage and then drops to pull their legs out. And I'm not uh, convinced that he's a better clinch fighter than Jacoby. No, but he's big. He is so big. And that is a, that makes a difference anytime you're tying up at all. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and Zetchuku opened at minus 118. He's currently on a minus 147. Jacoby opened at plus 107. He's currently plus 132. Certainly not a confident pick from either of us. Mm-hmm. Featherweight fight next. Diego Lopez, Gavin Tucker. And... Where has Gavin Tucker been? He keeps getting injured, I think. Yeah, I think he keeps getting injured. And yeah, it was him who withdrew from the two fights he had booked over the last two years. I also think. Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I was going to say, like, maybe he doesn't need to fight that much. I got to I got to I got to hope at this point he doesn't cuz he's 37. So Yeah, it's not going to it's not going to happen now. T- Tucker to me is is one of the standout like wasted potential. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm not accusing him of having wasted it. It's just a shame that it was wasted by fate. Yeah. Um, he's had seven he's had 6 years in the UFC and seven fights. Right. You know. And and he frequently looks like super impressive. Yeah. Like, man, this guy is sharp. He's a great athlete. He could do everything. Mm-hmm. And then he's had two problems, one of which is he can't seem to maintain the pace that he wants to put on people. Yep. So he tends to tire out and need, like, fallback tactics to survive or he doesn't survive. 
and B, his body keeps flying apart between yeah. fights. Yeah. Uh, it's just a shame. I, you look at Gavin Tucker and some of these performances and you're like, this dude should have been contending. Yeah, absolutely. He's got that level of skill and, 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 and uh, physical ability. And it makes this fight with uh, Diego Lopez really hard to call. Because yeah. Lopez is... He's kind of primed to lose at the UFC level. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he lost on contender series to Joe Anderson Brito. He's lost other fights earlier in his career. He's a complete no fear wild man. And it, you can it see made- also why he succeeded so much on the regional scene. Yeah, and it also made for maybe not a winning style at the UFC level, but it's a style that's going to win sometimes. Yeah, It yeah. made for a surprisingly difficult fight for Mavsar Evloev. Yeah, I mean, he went after Evloev from the jump, had no fear about just jumping into the pocket and trading hooks with him. Like, he was only landing one strike to every two that Evloev was landing, but yeah. he was so confident and so willing to stand in and put so much power on. It was a lot like Basil Hafez in that fight with Jack Della Maddalena. Yeah. You're like, man, Maddalena is piecing this dude up. And then one out of every five strikes, you're like, is Maddalena hurt right now? Sure. And if Loev, um after the fight, was like, he himself was like, this dude just would not stop trying to submit me. Yeah. The number of the close calls he had to fight off. I mean... Like, we're talking final stages of defending a submission. He couldn't yeah. actually shut uh, Lopez out of the attempts early enough to not have to seriously go go into a position where you're just wholly playing defense kind yeah. of thing. He's, he's very clearly the kind of fighter who is comfortable with the idea of, like, I am going to brawl, and either my brawling is going to knock you out, is going to let me take you down, or it will get me taken down, and that's fine. And I will just be on the on my back throwing up submissions instantly. And he does it with the the speed and aggression and intensity that you need if you're going to yeah. be forced yeah. onto your back. He grapples like a brawler too. Yeah, reminds me a bit of uh, you know he's he's more technical with his stand up. Hard to say, but it reminds me a lot of Honey Jason. Yeah, from way back in the day. Because mm-hmm. you're just like. Man is crazy. He's insane. This is probably going to end in tears, but it's a hell of a lot of fun to watch. And to do that, to be fair to Love, I mean, it was a short notice appointment for him as well. Yeah. He had to figure out who the fuck Lopez was live, basically. Yep. But still, to put um, a grappler of Love's caliber, um, he's still lost on the ground. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear. But to but to put him in trouble that many times to make it such a difficult thing just to try to beat him from top position yeah. um, is super impressive. And I can definitely see a version of this fight where Gavin Tucker has all the success in the world and then gets tired and gets submitted. Yeah, because I mean, here's the thing. Gavin he needs... Tucker... Go on, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, Gavin Tucker is almost certainly going to end up wrestling Diego Absolutely, Lopez. yes. That is what he does when he gets tired. Yep, and it has become increasingly just a default fallback 
not even always a tiredness, but just like the fight with Billy Quarantillo. Sure. He, he was just like, I'm just going to wrestle you or Sung Woo Choi. It's just like, yeah. He I'm mixes gonna... it in whenever, but when he's yeah. tired, it's like he needs yeah. it. He desperately he needs, needs it because otherwise he gets run over. And he's never been submitted doing it. So. Yeah. But Sam Cecilia didn't submit him. Yeah. But it is. Uh, it, it is going to be where this fight ends up. Yeah, he just, hasn't, he just hasn't faced a lot of good grapplers. He hasn't faced a lot of good grapplers. And so you really have to look at this and say, do I trust Diego Lopez to e- either knock Tucker out? Because that could happen too. Tucker did just go out and get slept by Danny Jay in his last fight. Not that Lopez is necessarily the puncher Danny Gay is, but he certainly throws hard enough. Sure. Or am I going to trust Diego Lopez to get put on his back and win from there in a fight where positionally, much like the uh, Ivloev fight, Lopez is probably going to be losing most of the minutes of this fight. Yeah. I'm kind of tempted to go option B, Zane. I kind of am tempted to like, which is a weird thing, but it's, there's such a reliable pattern to Tucker's fights. Yeah. Uh, he just, he starts so hot and does so much. And I think because he's smaller than most of his opponents, I haven't checked the reach and height difference here. Five, six, he's, a 66 inch reach to not a, five, 11, a 72 inch reach. And that is seems to be almost always the case. Like I think he was yeah. shorter than Dan Ige, yeah, uh, who's not a big featherweight. Yeah, he's an inch shorter than Dan Ige and has considerably less reach. Yeah, I think this is part of the reason that Tucker's style is so inefficient because, um, he makes up for that by being moving around a lot very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And being very explosive to cover distance and to get back out, and, um while being a guy who doesn't particularly know how to moderate the power on his shots, he's just tense the whole time. He's just coiled and ready to go. And this has resulted in him just so clearly gassing, like exactly midway through three round fights throughout his UFC career. Mm. And he needs to grapple when that happens. And it is impossible for me to look at these matchups and not realize like, yeah, of course he was able to successfully grapple these guys. Justin Janes, Sungwoo Choi, Sam Cecilia. Yeah. You know, guess who he lost to? Ricky Glenn. Good grappler. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I just think getting super tired and then having to grapple with the guy who made Mavsar Evloev play pure defense at like a dozen different points in a three-round fight is very dangerous. Yeah. it did. This is a danger, though, because this is one of those times... One of the vivisection's oldest rules. Of course. Don't overrate a fighter for looking good in a loss. Of course. But Gavin Tucker lost his last fight, too. He Gavin did. Tucker is a 37-year-old who has had basically two years of, from what I would have determined, injuries yeah. since his last fight in which he got knocked out in 20 seconds. Yeah. So I don't, there's not a ton of reason to be super confident in Gavin Tucker other than the fact that we have both looked at him and been like, this guy should be really good. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it has to be said, too, that he did just, you know, like Billy Quarantillo is a nonstop scrambler himself. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And Tucker shut him down for three rounds. That's true. He was able to land super clean on him and just get to all the wrestling situations on his own terms. He's very yep. good. I mean, he makes yeah. his style work. I just don't know. Quarantillo is also, it should be said, not actually a very good submission threat as a scrambler. No. He's had a few arm bars and triangle chokes and things like that in his career. But as we've seen in the UFC pretty readily in a variety of fights where he's had to do a lot of scrambling, he can he can get to good positions, but his priority is never to try and submit somebody or rarely to try and submit somebody through the scramble. It's almost always to try to turn, turn a scramble into ground and pound. Yeah. And I think he is quite notably not as good an athlete as Diego Lopez either. Yeah. That is Quintillo's like whole style is. Yeah. Be bad athlete, be (laughs) utterly tough and hard to kill and make you work all the time. Somewhat like Ricky Glenn, I suppose, just being surprisingly effective against a sea of superior athletes. Yep. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm feeling Lopez. I just. I think. I think I am as well. It, but he's, it it's really kind of like he's got to finish, right? He's got to get yeah. like a late sub. Yeah. It really, honestly, if he doesn't, then Tucker probably just beats him by yeah. being positionally dominant. He's going to land a shitload of clean shots early, and then he's going to yeah. be in the winning positions. Yeah. Uh, for as long as he's not actively being submitted later in the fight. Yep. So. If you want to pick Gavin Tucker out there, listener, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think Gavin Tucker is super good and has the potential to be really, really great. He also just um, feels like a fighter that the sport yeah. passed him by, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Tucker opened at minus 102, jumped up to plus 102. He's currently at plus 149. Lopez opened at minus 125. He's currently down at minus 167. I'm not surprised, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tucker just doesn't fight that much. What people remember out of him on, at this point is not his win so much as his disastrous losses. So, and Lopez, yeah. yeah, he had that thing. He looked great in a loss, and it's that is one of the easiest positions to overrate somebody for. Hundred percent. Like, oh man, yeah, they lost, but they looked really good losing that fight. He didn't even look overall good. He just yeah. looked dangerous. He looked I mean, dangerous. that's the yeah. thing. He looked super dangerous. All right. That brings us to a, a light heavyweight bout. Tanner Bozer, Alexa Kamer. Wow. And, um... Well, they had to stick one of them on this card. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the yeah. Apex, literally the Apex Octagon can only take so many big lumbering bozos. <laughs> it's, it's for structural reasons. Yeah, that's true. You got to spread them. You think the UFC is springing for that like grade A plywood? <laughs> this is like that white pine bullshit. The cheapest shit you get at a Home Depot. <sighs> um, the, the octagon is built on balsa wood. That's right. They're leftover ships from Boy Scout rain gutter regattas. <laughs> that's the frame. <laughs> um, 
It's a toothpick. It, they at one point Dana White made a toothpick recreation of the octagon, and they actually just had to use it from that yeah. point forward. No, Dana White has never done anything that creative. No. <laughs> that, that is borderline pseudo artistic. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I mean, this is really stupid. Um, yeah. Tanner Bozer now making. I think this is his second light heavyweight fight. Yeah, yeah. Second. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up being Iwan Kudalaba's, like, only win in, like, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and I think it was largely, first of all, you know, first fight in a new division. Things always feel different. You're like, oh, my God, these guys are fast, that kind of thing. But I think really what we called heading into that fight, I don't even remember who we picked. We but picked we definitely with the idea that he could just be tough. Tough enough yeah. to outlast Kudalaba. Which he wasn't. She wasn't. Um, but even in that pick, we we were we were both pretty confident that like there was a strong chance Bozer's style worked a lot better at heavyweight than it is going to at light heavyweight. Yeah. I mean the big thing about Bozer as a heavyweight was he was super durable. Yeah, and fast That's and mobile. He is he's one of these anti divisional meta fighters. Yeah. His style has been remarkably successful at heavyweight because heavyweights are big and clumsy and slow and get tired really fast. Yep. And if one of these things is not true, the fight is always going to be more difficult because really there's not nearly as much meat to Bozer's game as he might think there is. Yeah. He's I mean, not a, a fighter a, out there. Yeah, go on. I was going to say, there, there's a reason that, you know, and I realize... I came up with this whole idea myself, so I can only uh, blow my own horn on this. But there's a reason that, like, power and durability are king at heavyweight, mm -hmm. and speed and power are king at light heavyweight. Yeah. Durability, it's cool if you have it, but it's not what defines a good light heavyweight, honestly. So there are great light heavyweights who are plenty durable. Don't tell me like, oh, what are you saying? John Jones and Alexander Gustafson weren't durable and all that. Daniel Cormier no. and yeah. But what I'm saying is that you can rise to the top of the light heavyweight division yeah. without durability being your greatest trait, as we are currently seeing uh, Johnny Walker do. He's like top five ranked now in that division. Let's put it this way. It's not a division where you're as likely to get to the top just by leaning on durability. Yes, because the thing is, is that everybody in that division is so fast and hits so hard that even the most durable fighters are going to end up getting slept. Yeah. So really, you have to have the speed and the power to match people, because if you don't have that and you're trying to lean on your chin, they are going to crack it. Yeah, durability is useful in every division. But it is, it is a it heavyweight. Is. It is like the primary positive exactly. ability. It's like you, everyone's super slow, and so are you. You are absolutely going to get hit really hard, really, really hard by somebody putting all 290 pounds of their flabby ass behind their right hand. And you have to be able to just eat that. Yeah. And, Light heavyweight. Uh, you are going, there are going to be strikes that are fast enough that you don't see them coming from yeah. guys that are big enough that it doesn't matter how durable you are. 
if you didn't see that shot, yeah, and you heavy, you're drained at all, you know, a heavyweight seeing a head kick is like seeing a white stag. Yeah, you know, exactly. that is like an event the whole village comes out to celebrate and have a festival. <laughs> yeah. The gods have blessed us kind of thing. Yeah. Like light heavyweight, you're getting head kicked all over the damn shop. Yeah. There's just much more dynamic shit to worry about. It really is that. And yeah. so Tanner Bozer, he was a durable heavyweight. He brought that down to light heavyweight with him and it just didn't it wasn't worth anything. You know? His game just isn't functional. Yeah. And um, the, the the difficulty in picking a matchup like this is I'm not sure what Alexa Kamer's game is. <laughs> I mean, is he another of the hard onk cat? No, he's strong style. That's right. He's a steep a acolyte. Okay. Um, but he has that very MMA kickboxing style. Yes. Of like. He will throw high kicks. Yeah, of like, oh, you know, it's it, it's a very like crow cop as a kickboxer, um, or not crow. Anthony Hardonk is a guy I keep I bring up in these kinds of cases where you're like, you okay. see them in an MMA cage and you're like, oh wow, yeah, you can you can throw some pretty clean strikes. Yeah, but it's just not like it's right. not tuned to being a real high level kickboxing style. It's a very one power shot at a time yeah. kind of. Krokop was at least a decent kickboxer. Yeah, he was. But, but he, he too had the same yeah. thing, where he was a much better striker in the context of MMA. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's that kind of style where you see it and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you you're an all right kickboxer, but like, I wouldn't put you in the ring with Badahari and be like, oh yeah, you're gonna you're gonna comp compete here. Yeah. You know, definitely my my go to for. Uh, Technically superior kickboxers, Bader Hari. <laughs> yeah, okay, no, 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 I know. No, but... no, fair enough. Bader Hari's remarkably successful. Yes, yeah. just a big scary lummox. Bader Hari should do light heavyweight MMA. He should. He should. With a game like that. Yeah, he's That's... just fast and hits hard and gets into stupid. We go Verhoeven there. The we go Verhoeven. Sure. Yeah. But like, yeah, I'm not going to expect you to compete at a high level in kickboxing with this kind of skill set. It's not what you see out of. Arasanya or yeah. Pereira, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, certainly he looked um, relatively competent dealing with most of what William Knight threw at him. Then again, he also had moments where he just backed himself into the cage and put his hands up like he was wearing eighteen ounce gloves. Yeah, and just got blasted by the first combination William Knight had ever thrown. Yep. Um. And ultimately kind of had to grapple William Knight to beat him. Yeah. To beat him comfortably anyway. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it's also, it's a, it's a very like Pat Barry style of kickboxing. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Good. That's a perfect. That's point. a good comparison. That is somebody who definitely did not and was not going to make it as a pure kickboxer. Yeah. But you watched him in MMA context. Like, oh, yeah, I see uh -huh. it. I see uh -huh. that you do it. Um, I mean, am I going to pick against Bozer just because I don't think he knows how to fight for this division? Kinda. That's my feeling. And that he went through what was clearly a massive lifestyle change to make the new weight. Radically yeah. transforming his body. I mean, a process, you know, it, that took him several years because he was like slimming down at heavyweight even before he made the move. And then yep. just instantly got smoked. I mean, that can't feel good. No. There is the fact, too, though, that 
had the ref stop, not stepped in, he might have actually stepped, kept in that fight. <laughs> That's true. Anyone could lava probably would have imploded. Yeah. But <sighs> I mean, it's just that, the question then becomes that, like at light heavyweight, well, what do you do? Are you a fat? Do you have power for the light heavyweight division? Do you have speed for the light heavyweight division? Yeah. Is there any part of your game that you can technically lean on for Tanner Bozer? Yeah, and he certainly doesn't have like a technical baseline. And he's not out there like jabbing and pivoting. Yeah. He's not like the, his he has an outfighting style that really relies on the opponent being a big lumbering dumbass. Yeah. Hamer's not a big lumbering dumbass. You know, no, like he, I, I'm not throws, I don't find him particularly typical light heavyweight. He's fast and powerful. And dynamic. I don't find it's, it particularly impressive or inspiring, but uh, if he's going to have like just a terrible MMA kickboxing match, he can probably like come up with more ideas and put out a greater variety of shots and confuse Tanner Bozer a bit. So I'll, I'll take him. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to, but I really just don't like. I don't like this. The I, I think that. The jump between heavyweight and light heavyweight is much more difficult than fighters want to think it is. And that fans want to think it is either. We see some fighters do it and make it look easy. You see somebody like, you know, you see somebody like Jailson Almeida be like, yeah, I'm just going to go up and take a heavyweight fight and I can just rip this 300 pound man off his feet and sit on him like a, like a playground bully. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, you know, that's easy. And you, you know, you see that kind of interplay, but light heavyweights by and large are not meant to be heavyweights or they would be, they are not, they don't have the durability to be heavyweights. They don't have the confidence, but heavyweights by the same token often aren't meant to go anywhere else, but heavyweight where they don't have the speed to fight in the lower division. They don't have, the ability, the dynamic ability to surprise people with technique, you know, they need to be in like big, sloppy, tough man wars. Yeah. And that feels like Tanner Bozer, who Bozer was like, you go back and you watch Bozer's old pre UFC fights. And pretty much all of his wins in those fights were him just absolutely having the ugliest worst fight with people and leaning on them until they got really tired and then him beating them with volume and speed. Yeah. It was not some trick of like, Oh yeah. Tanner Bozer. It's just so specific to heavyweight. Yeah. So I'm going to take Kamer too. I just don't like him at light heavyweight. I don't think I don't think he's built for it. Yeah. Uh, Both are open to minus 185, currently minus 146. Kamer opened at plus plus 144, currently plus 131. And those odds should just be dead even, honestly. Mm-hmm. I know Kamer lost to William Knight, but William Knight is your prototypical light heavyweight. It was yeah. bad, but... You know, and he tried to go up to heavyweight and found all of the reasons that light heavyweights <laughs> tend not to be able to go up to heavyweight. But 
he was a very lightning fast ball of muscle, you know? Yeah. And the fight was pretty close. Yeah. It was, it was like nothing definitive happened. For yeah. Three rounds, basically. Also every time, very much a William Knight fight. Yeah. Every time Knight got a takedown, Kamer would work really, really hard to try to win the position and basically just like make a bad decision and force his way to his feet and then Knight would fall over. Yeah. And Kamer would be on top for an equal amount of time kind of thing. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a lightweight fight. Ignacio Bahamandes against Ludovic Klein. And um, should be fun. Should be fun. Should be a thrill. I kind of think that there's only really one way I can pick in this fight. Because Klein's game is probably one of the most singularly, weirdly one-dimensional games in the UFC to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he's basically superb in a kicking battle Mm -hmm. and rock solid in a pocket boxing battle. And that's it. And everywhere else, he is going to struggle or lean on skills that are very underdeveloped. Yeah. So if you're punching, if he's having to punch or deal with punching problems from distance, Klein doesn't really have the tools to do it. Uh, He's probably not that. He's five foot seven with a 72 inch reach, which is a long reach for a short guy. Sure. But it's still five foot seven at lightweight. And in, you know, fighting, fighting uh, Jai Herbert, it was really all he could do to just try to constantly close him down. Yeah. Well, all he's the time. an inch taller than Gavin Tucker up a division. Yeah. It's not very big, is it? No, and then in the cases of both his fights with uh, Michael Trezano and Nate Landwehr, both of them were, and neither one of them being, like, really notably solid strikers, technically, were able to just kind of lean on, you know, especially in Trezano's case, lean on the jab Mm -hmm. and just out-jab Ludovic Klein. And just stay, keep pressure on him and keep him uncomfortable in a way that, like, like I said with Herbert, you know, he had to end up with a draw against Jai Herbert Mm -hmm. because he ended up having to lean pretty much entirely on, like, trying to out-wrestle Herbert. Yeah. For a guy who's a great striker out in, in like in two specific settings, he could never keep those settings long enough to actually manage the fight there. Yeah, I mean, and and Herbert, as we noted, um, leading into his last fight, is not really a fighter who actually uses his reach that well. No, doesn't really enforce his range. Yeah, he's got a lot of snap on his strikes, but if yeah. you try to close him down and like get in the pocket with him he will almost always seed range and let you get inside on him. Uh, And 
just Ignacio Bahamonda seems like a nightmare matchup for huge. all of this. Yeah. He's huge. He enforces his range really well. He's impossible to take down and yeah. keep down. Well, he does enforce it and he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. As okay. far as your tall your tall guys go, not that it gets broken on him, if that not that his, the bubble of his range gets burst by the opponents, it's more like he just uh pushes in. Yeah, he, he's he's like an Antonio Margarito tall guy. It's true. Yeah, very happy to march in and have a mid-range exchange with you, despite his size. But um, he also this all comes from the jab. It usually yeah. comes off of his initiative, and his range is still a big factor. And he's a very solid clinch fighter, and he's really hard to take down. Yeah, and he's super high output, which is another super high output. Another thing that really seems to have. Uh, been key to giving Landwehr pro- or, or giving Klein problems. Yeah. And I just feel like he's going to get the front foot and Klein can offer him, you know, some hard, he can offer him some really good kicks as Bahamondes is stepping into range, but Bahamondes is going to be able to pop him with his jab at Klein's kicking range. And I think it's just going to put Klein off his game entirely. Yeah. That's basically it. Yeah, I I think I'm kind of with you on that. Um, I mean, Klein has been, frankly, he has been more successful than I think I would have expected. Because I never, I never looked at his style and saw anything like fully fledged. Mm -hmm. It's it is a weird, as you said, a weirdly limited and and super range specific kind of game. Yeah. Basically everything that isn't him um, landing a kick or countering somebody who blasts into the pocket on him, yeah, is uh, is like a, a one idea at a time and a lot of empty space between them. Yep. And uh, I think it's mostly worked just because like he is insanely powerful. He's he's got great power and a lot of MMA strikers still are mid-distance, plant-your-feet-take-turns. Like, yeah. that was the big thing with Devontae Smith, where I was just like, yeah, Devontae Smith is just going to plant himself in the mid-range with Klein, and he's going to get out, he's going to get out-techniqued by somebody yeah. with, with more comfort there. And it still had the sort of, the hints of a fight where, like, man, if Devontae Smith was a little more experienced, he would probably win this all day. Yeah. And the Mason uh, Jones fight, that was one where I think we expected Mason Jones to be able to do the right things with Klein. Yeah. But we just really saw how much, what success Mason Jones had had in, like, against David Onama. Yeah, and, was down to Onama making incredibly stupid decisions. Yeah. Like, Mason Jones' game is really technically limited. Yeah. In every phase. And he just tries to grit his way through it. Yeah. If, if Anama, as an impressive physical specimen and a guy who at times can be a great technician as well, didn't have a completely unavoidable, a, a permanent tendency to fight down yeah. to his opponent's level, we probably wouldn't have thought much of Mason Jones to begin with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm taking Bahamundas too. I mean, I just think he's, he's high output. He's huge. Um, he is going to basically be a problem for Klein to deal with at every moment and at every single range. 
And um, that is absolutely not the kind of matchup that I have seen Klein win. Yeah. So is he going to head kick KO Ignacio Bahamondes? Because otherwise I don't think he's going to win this fight. Yeah. And, you know, I realize he hasn't faced a, bu- a bunch of really good takedown defenders or takedown artists yet. But Bahamondes is currently 95%, has defended 95% of the shots he's he's faced. And the one he gave up resulted in 20 seconds of control. Mm-hmm. He is really good at actually using his lanky frame to stuff people and make himself hard to take down. Mm-hmm. So given that that's what Klein had to really lean on against Jai Herbert, yeah, I don't think that that option is going to be there for him. To get a draw. I mean, yeah, Far- Forrest Ziam successfully out-wrestled this dude. Yeah, like I said, every part of Klein's game outside of these two places where he has surprising technique and power, it just seems really undercooked. Like, he has a couple... He has one technique he can go to with his striking from... with his with his boxing from distance. And if you can put a jab in his face, his boxing just vanishes. From the outside, he's just too one and done. He just doesn't have any connecting pieces to his striking game. Yeah, and he can he can throw some good clean power hooks in the pocket, and you're like, oh wow, that's really sharp. But then he gets, you know, if he gets tied up or something else happens, then it's oh, can he hit that one takedown or can he land that one elbow? If not, his opponent is going to make you think everything miserable for him. Yeah, so. Uh, odds on the bout, Bahamondes is a solid but not spectacular favorite. Open at minus 183, currently down at minus 214, so that line is getting wider. Klein opened at plus 163, is currently at plus 188. Yeah, I really, I think this should be a really good fight for Bahamondes personally. I think it'll be um, fun, but I I really like what I'm seeing out of him ever since that McDessey loss. And honestly, think he's think he's taken a lot of the right lessons away, you know. Yeah, and even that was an impressive showing in a loss. Yeah, he clearly wasn't ready for that level of technique and and craft, but he uh, hung tough and made it a very difficult fight for McDessie all the same. Yep. Well, those were McDessie dominated him, but was never allowed to be comfortable doing so. Yep. Yeah. All right. On that note. Uh, we are going to jump over to last week's card for a little bonus content here. So if you are a Substack subscriber, you'll get some bonus content. If you're not, you will have to live in the sad, depressive state of somebody who uh, doesn't get everything they could out of life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, Go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, 
the MMA Vivisection main card and prelims UFC preview shows, the sixth round post-fight show, the Show Money podcast, and the MMA depressed us.